I'm Eric Tonis. I'm one of the elders at Grace. Spend most of my time in La Mirada, but I love coming over here. I love being here for this Sunday, Defending the Fatherless Sunday, this very special time in the history of our church. Project Hope is the ministry that helps us be more real as Christians. God says that true religion, real, authentic religion, finds expression in things like looking after orphans and widows in their distress. There's this real great bottom line in the authenticity of our, of our new identity in Christ that shows up in caring for people in costly ways that, that is at cost to us. And Project Hope is a ministry that does that here at Grace. It's been going on for about seven years. God's been stirring not just at Grace, but in churches around the world to take seriously this call to help the most needy in the world. The orphan crisis in the world is, is a tragic thing. And a lot of people are aware of things like the AIDS epidemic and sex trafficking, but a lot of times people don't make the necessary connection between those sorts of things and the orphan crisis, which often ends up perpetuating a lot of those problems and is caused by a lot of those problems. And, and so th this is a strategic way to be truly helpful in the world as, as we help the most needy. So. It's a great ministry. One of the best things about being a local church is seeing the effect of our ministry spread all over the place. And some of you remember Carissa. Who remembers Carissa McDuff, now Balaram? Yes, a few of you. She was a dear sister at Grace, and she helped among the leaders, the, the first leaders, Betsy Clark and Donna and Marla and others, who got, and Brian Peterson, got this ministry moving. And a few years ago, she became a missionary, uh, married a man who's of Indian descent and is now a missionary of with him, he's a pastor of a church they started in Gurgaon, and her, she's now taken her burden for, for orphans to India with her that was stirred here at Grace, and she is uh, leading in those sorts of ways. And last Sunday, which around the world was uh, Orphan Sunday, they call it, Carissa launched this ministry at their church in Gurgaon, and we have a picture of the, the patio where they had that. There they are in India, right outside their church, or doesn't that look so Carissa? If you know Carissa, that's got some of her touch in it there. And uh, they, they launched that ministry. And it's thrilling to think of grace spreading in that sort of way. Sunday night, we got a text, uh, an email from, from Carissa that Donna has on her phone that she was able to find. And would you read some of that for us, Don? Yes, I got it. So Carissa was excited to get married and move to India, but she was a little bit sad that she had to leave Project Hope and the exciting things that God was doing at our church and um, through our ministry and through her in particular. And so her hope was that she could sort of replicate it in India. Well, she's been there five years, and it's been a little bit discouraging because it is so countercultural to care for especially orphaned girls in a culture that doesn't value baby girls. Um, so... She's been working on this and hoping to do this for five years, and we got this email from her on Sunday night, which really made us cry. <laughs> and Carissa says, Orphan Sunday went so well. Thanks for praying. Lots of people over 30 signed up for what I called engaging practically, for things like hosting a Christmas party for a local orphanage or paying for an orphan girl's wedding. That one just kills me or providing school fees. In that culture, you, you can't get married if somebody isn't uh, willing to pay, pay for your wedding. 
and providing school fees. Four families signed up for Engaging Radically, which means that I'll be providing them with a resource packet on how to adopt here in India and why we should adopt, etc. And this is where she's been bumping up against walls, is trying to convince Christians that that we should think about orphans and feel a responsibility for them. And so four people signed up for that, and she was thrilled about that. And she said, I had printed 50 copies of your article on adoption um, on a table. This is one that, that I wrote, and they were all gone. Plus, everyone got a prayer card, and at the, end of the, at the end of the event, a group stood around talking about how we should be doing more, and would we ever consider starting our own orphanage. So thanks that this conversation has officially started in our church five years in the making. It was very exciting, and I'm feeling so thrilled and so tired, she says. So, well, at Project Hope, we are excited about the ways that God is not only using us to, um, to reach out through Carissa and India, but in ways um, like we're going to Rwanda this spring, a group of us, um, to partner with churches in Rwanda to help them think about um, the orphan crisis and their responsibility to orphans in their own country because we really believe in Project Hope that the church is the answer to the orphan crisis. And by when we say church, we mean all of us, right, regardless of whether we're a college student or we're 80, um, but that we all need to ask the Lord, um, if you have a heart for orphans as you do, what is our responsibility in that? So we would love to um, welcome you to, to c- come visit us at our Project Hope meeting um, and our next one is on November 17th, and it's what we call uh, pie and giving thanks. So we have homemade pies, and we have lots of opportunity to just hear from people and to give thanks and to pray. Thank you, dear. Yeah. Last Sunday is when we observed this in La Mirada, and Hyatt Moore, an excellent artist, came, and during the three services out in the patio, painted this painting for us. Uh, They have adopted a child and and motivated by his heart for orphans and uh, what we were about. He he painted that out on our patio and now it's ours. And uh, thanks to some generosity of people in our church, uh, we're not sure where it'll go, but uh, it's beautiful and I love it. It has a great big empty wall. Your office does, yes. You got claims on that? All right. And this was made by Laura, Hur- Laura Hurley Burley over here, right? Because, right, but you, and tell us about, tell us about this. Yeah, I love that example of, of Laura not in the process of adopting or anything like that, but having a heart for orphan care and, and providing uh, a real behind-the-scenes sort of supportive ministry to enable things to happen and, and care for these kids during the Project Hope meetings. And, and, and that's what we would love for you to catch a vision for. It's so easy to come to a time like this and say, well, that's not what I'm called to, or that's obviously not practically workable for me. But it's like missions. Even if you're not called to be a missionary, as a Christian, you need to deeply care about missions and be 
intentionally connected to supporting that prayerfully, financially, uh, with your heart, cheering on what is happening for those that are directly involved, that you, that you own caring for the poor. I don't go to um, food bank very often, but I'm so grateful I get to be part of something that's caring for the poor in our community, like food bank. And so to, to care for the poor, even if you're not called to live on Skid Row and care for the poor in that sort of direct way, still means you need to have a, a heart for this. And to see the way God has done very, that we have people in our church who've said, rather than wedding presents, would you just give the money you would have given to Project Hope? How beautiful is that sort of mentality? And caring about orphans in that sort of way. Now, what I want us to realize is how profoundly theologically driven is this ministry and this mentality. This is anything but mere do-gooder, sort of uh, feel good about ourselves, random act of kindness sort of thing. No, this is profoundly theologically driven. This is the fifth time I have been part of the corporate sung worship for this service that Kenny and the team have masterfully orchestrated for us, and I've loved every minute of it. I wish I could do 10 more times of this because this is right at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to realize that in our sin, we were, we were defeated, dead, prisoners, and orphans, and God not only freed us from our sin, but adopted us into his family. And out of that, we live a life of extravagant love like he loved us. That's, that's the, right, see? That, that's the whole point. Uh, in light of how we've been loved, we love. So would you open your Bibles to 1 John 4? I want us to make sure we catch the theological core, the biblical Christian core of this love that we are seeking to show. 1 John 4, we'll pick it up in verse 7. Notice how, how theological and practical this is. John can't get one breath out without in the next breath talking about the implications of having been loved like we are. Watch. 1 John 4, verse 7. You ready? Beloved, love that, starts off affirming our identity, who we are, loved ones. Loved ones, love that. So we're grounded in the established fact of who we are, the is of our faith. And then let us love one another. Loved ones, let us love one another. For love is from God. So this is the command. This is at the heart of being a Christian. Jesus says, You'll, they'll know you're my disciples by your t-shirts and bumper stickers. Nothing wrong with t-shirts, obviously, or bumper stickers for that matter. But he says, they'll know you're my disciples how? By your love for one another. The way you love is going to be this distinguishing mark of a Christian that distinguishes you from people who aren't Christians. That's what he's saying. And the great commandment Jesus gives us is to love one another. In light of how we've been loved, love like God loved you. That's what, that, that's what we're being called to here is loving like God. The great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. Jesus says the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbors yourself. And if you take seriously this command, you will be bewildered by the impossibility of it. If you, when I consider the self-absorbed, self-focused 
self-protective, self-exalting nature of my heart. That's just how I boot up in the morning. That's just how I am, flat out. That comes as naturally as anything, is being Eric consumed. And what God is saying, yes, take that, your own self-protective instincts, your own self-interested, absorbed instincts, and turn that outward. And love others as you love yourself, it says. Take that, I would say even God-given self-protective instinct, and start turning that outward. And care for others, love others. In Philippians 2, Paul says that we're not only to look out for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. Considering others is more important than yourself. And we're told to follow the example of Jesus in this. A radical call to love. And this is impossible apart from what we'll see in this passage. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Then listen, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In the Bible, it's very clear. There are those who know God and those who don't. There are those who have been born of God and those who have not. There are those who have been adopted into God's family and those who are still orphans. This sort of brotherhood of man, fatherhood of God, everybody's okay. That's not the way the Bible sees it. There is a kind of love that flows from knowledge of God in an intimate, personal way and having been loved by God that's qualitatively different than just general love. Now, people love in general all the time. A firefighter will, at the expense of his own life, save someone else's life. You could say, well, that, there's a goodness there. There's a love there. But the Bible talks about a kind of love that isn't just general love by God's common grace, but gospel love by God's transforming work in the hearts of his children. There's a difference here. And it's not minimizing the beauty of general love, but here's something different. See, it's love that flows out of knowledge of God and having been born of God. There's a love new creatures in Christ possess and exhibit that is qualitatively different than those who are not new creatures in Christ. This is the calling of the Christian. Now, you may be sitting there, not a Christian this morning. Maybe a friend brought you, and I'm so glad you're here. I love that you're here. And you may be sitting there saying, well, this is all well and good, but Christians do not love this way. I have lots of examples of just the opposite. I know lots of Christians who are mean and spiteful and hateful people. And so this doesn't seem to look like my experience. And I, I want to say, I'm sorry, we dropped the ball a lot. There are gaps between what we're called to and how we really live. And so I'm sorry for how often we drop the ball as Christians, but I also want you to consider that maybe you haven't looked closely enough. I've, I've been a Christian as long as I can remember. I'm 50, and I've spent a lot of time with a lot of Christians, and I want you to know I have seen the display of God's love in astounding ways directly to me and my family and in hundreds and thousands of other ways too throughout my life that is unexplainable apart from something God has done in the hearts of those people. I'm astounded by the way God's people love. Astounded. And, and we have that going on in our church in all sorts of ways, all sorts of beautiful ways. Today we're thinking about how that's going on in, in the caring for orphans, where people are saying, I'm so confident in who God is, uh, is uh, in who God is being toward me and freeing me up that I can love in amazing ways. And we've got people saying things like, we want a child who's 
especially suffering. We, we want a child with a heart problem or with, with Down syndrome or uh, who, who's especially got some serious issues that, that we feel especially called. People doing things that should make you scratch your head and say, what? As if life isn't hard enough. What are you doing? And we've even seen that. Even Christians say, what, what? they're sort of mad. When people take that sort of risk in the way they love. And we need to be those kinds of people. But let's look where this comes from. Look, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So God is love. Don't flip that. You don't define God by love. You define love by God. You realize that God is love. It permeates everything that is true of him. There's nothing about God that isn't loving, including his wrath. But you, you don't define God by love. Oprah will do that all the time. People do that. God is love. Love is God. If you're loving, you have God in you. And you. No, no. We see love when we see God. We define love by God, not the other way around. And so we're called to this authenticity of belief because we've come to know the God who is love. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest. Great! We're going to have the ultimate example of what love looks like. How great is that? We are, talk about an overused word, love, a word defined in all kinds of ways. People define love in ways that God says is the opposite of love. Called evil good and good evil. And isn't it great that we are not dependent on the latest pop song to define love for us? Katy Perry is not the definer of love. Isn't that good news? You guys know who Katy Perry is? She's, if you, for some of you older folks, she, she's a, the young kids listen to her a lot, apparently. Um, um, yeah, and, and, and we don't depend on latest pop song to define love. Here we go. In this, the love of God was made manifest. Okay, where do you see it? Among us, not uh, sort of in just theory, but among us, that God sent his only son. He sent his only son. So in the sending of the son, you know, John 3, 16, for God so loved, he gave. In the sending of his son, God sent his only son into the world, so that we might live through him. So God met our greatest need, new life, eternal life, abundant life in the son, in relationship with him. He's done this for us now. And that's how we see love. So as we'll see, we'll see it in Jesus dying for us. But here we see it in the incarnation, God becoming flesh, one of us. So that's how we see love in the sending of the son. And this is love. This is great. It's so definitional. Watch. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is one of those times you just need to bolster your vocabulary. You just do. Propitiation is just a word you need to know. It means to satisfy God's anger towards sin. It means he's been satisfied in his righteous wrath and judgment towards sin. It's satisfied in Jesus because he took our sin and considered Jesus sinful in our place. He poured out his wrath and punishment and judgment on Jesus in our place. And because of that, Jesus is our propitiation, our satisfaction of God's righteous anger towards sin. He becomes that for us. That's the heart of the gospel. Jesus in our place. Verse 11. Beloved, there it is again. Your identity as loved ones. 
If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Please realize that this ought here is fundamentally connected to the is here. We are beloved. We are children of God. We have been loved by God. The, the are and the ought need to go together. Often we disconnect the are and the ought. We read all this good stuff about ourselves and then we get on with doing it unaware of the are, the, the is that's established that we need to link it to all the time. It, and so listen, listen to how one commentator puts it. It's beautiful. The love that you have as a born-again person is, is no mere imitation of divine love. It can have that dynamic as you're learning, but fundamentally it's deeper than that. Listen, it's an experience of the divine love and an extension of that love to others. We love because he first loved us. When he says we ought to love each other, as he does here, he means ought the way a fish ought to swim in water and birds ought to fly in the air and living creatures ought to breathe and peaches ought to be sweet and lemons ought to be sour and hyenas ought to laugh. And born again people ought to love. It's who we are. This is not a mere imitation. For the children of God, imitation becomes realization. We are realizing who we are when we love. God's seed is in us. God's spirit is in us. God's nature is in us. And God's love is being perfected in us. It's that great line Kenny said about, he loved us in the lump. He, he, he gave everything, all his love to us. He's not withholding some for later. He's, he's working out of that lump. To, it could, I was just thinking, could to totally redefine the, the expression, uh, take your lumps. You ever hear that expression, take your lumps, you know, take a beating? Take your lumps. That's what we do when we come to church. We're, we're taking our lumps and saying, wow, look how loved we are to ourselves. That's, that's what he's done for us in Christ. He's loved us in the lump. He's loved us completely. All heavenly blessings are ours in Christ. That's how much he loves us. And then we love out of that. Watch verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Whoa. So that word, I love that word perfected. It's, it's tell us. It's this goal, destination, maturity, point of uh, arrival, right? It's not because Jesus' death on the cross was somehow insufficient for saving us. But it means all along from eternity past, God intended that the love shown on the cross work itself out in the way we love so that he'll be glorified and people will be drawn to the Savior. It's this, this radically important dynamic to connect the love God has for us to the way that then spills out into the world. And notice, this is out of a God who is love, who's not depending on the next day's supply to be able to do it again. No, he's got this perfect and infinite character. He's never doing anything out of need or deficit of any kind. And so it's overflow love. It's not love for what's gotten in return. It's not love to meet unmet needs. No, it's wonderfully self-sufficient, overflowing, extravagant love because God's love, it's linked to his eternal nature. That's, that's this wonderful news. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is then displayed in us. Listen, 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. 
because he has given us of his spirit. See, we've already got the Father sending the Son, the Son joyfully submitting to the will of the Father and coming. Now the Spirit, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who is Trinity, is at work here. The Spirit works this into our hearts and lives. Verse 14, and we've seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. We know this by the Spirit's work. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So this comes about through a Spirit-enabled confession, a speaking in reality what we've come to know in saving faith, that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. He's the one who takes our sins upon himself. It's this confession of Jesus is who he is. 16, so that we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. There it is again. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. Listen, by this is love perfected. There's that. It's brought to its intended goal in with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment Because as he is, so also we are in the world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Did you catch that? When we've been loved by God that way, we become fearless. Because we don't even have to fear God himself in all his righteous, holy wrath. We don't have to fear the coming judgment. We don't have to fear anything. Then then finances, is that something to fear? The future, is that something to fear? Your romantic life, is that something to fear? The, The certainty of your health tomorrow, is that something to fear? No, if you don't have to fear almighty God on his, on his throne, well, then what is there left to fear? And the freedom that comes with fearlessness is a freedom from anxiety, a freedom from a calculated way of living to make sure that no hurt comes your way that you can possibly prevent. And what happens is God's people live out of fearlessness. And we start to live in a way that is counterintuitive, countercultural, a way that defies explanation apart from the fearlessness that comes through the gospel's work in our lives. Do you guys remember 1981? It was a great year. Who was alive in 81? Just a few of us, you poor people. You missed the launch of Thriller. You missed the beginning of rap music. You, you, you never saw Michael Jackson as a good-looking black man. All these, all these things you missed. You thought it was always like that. But no, 81. in 81, Ronald Reagan was the president. My, my dear Caroline has been here going on eight years, and the only president she's ever had is Barack Obama. And, and, and she's, she's eager to see, see what's next. And um, <laughs> she's got opinions about this. But, um, but yeah, she, she um, what was I saying before I got distracted? 81. 81. Reagan walks out of a building in 81, and an assassin starts firing bullets at him from his left. And everybody starts scattering. Se- two Secret Service guys are on top of Reagan immediately in the back of his limo. They, they, and it, Reagan got hit on the way into the limo. And everybody's scattering for their life. Except for one dude, Tim McCarthy. I have a picture of what he did when those bullets started coming. Look at this picture of, of the Secret Service agent. The bullets are coming from this way, guys. And do you see what this guy does? He turns toward the bullets. 
And do you see what he's doing? He's making himself as big as he possibly can so that he gets shot instead of the president, so that he takes the hit rather than the president. And this is where he ends up. Look, look at the next picture. He ends up on the ground. That's McCarthy in the front. He got shot three times. He survived. But let's go back to the first one. I look at that picture and it's so moving to me every time I see it because I, I look at that and I say, that's what Jesus did. Jesus turned toward the pain, toward the suffering, and took it on himself, did everything he could, everything we needed him to, to bear our pain, suffering, burden. He didn't create it, but he took it to himself. And that's what he does for us. And that's the kind of love he calls us to express because we've been loved that way. A kind of love that says, I so believe God's going to take care of me in all my pain that I'm gonna start looking around for the pain of others to make my own. I'm gonna move out of a self-preserving, self-exalting, self-calculating life and start to make others suffering my own. And I'm going to live a life that's costly in that way. That's what we're called to. I, I love being part of a church where we're seeing this displayed in so many ways. I know some of you take days and go visit people who can't get out of bed, who used to be members of our church and regularly here and can't anymore, and you visit them and you feed them and care for them when you could be doing lots of other things with your afternoon. And your husband's the only one who knows it. Expending of yourself in the way, and Project Hope is a beautiful way that we're, we're spearheading this kind of love. Watch this video of what's going on in Project Hope and then we'll hear from some of our folks. <laughs> 